Hello everyone and welcome to the Being Seen podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett. This podcast has been established to help parents master parenting in the digital age. It's also to go along with my new book called Being Seen. The aim is to interview parents to see their struggles and what they're doing to combat the digital onslaught and experts around the world. So together we can activate the parent network, educators and anyone interested in keeping children safe online in 2024. Thank you. Today we're joined by L.A. Paul. She is the Millstone Family Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Cognitive Science at Yale University. Um, I will put the links into her extensive CV, but just to say that her research interests are in metaphysics, cognitive science, decision theory, and the philosophy of mind. And today we're specifically going to be focusing down on one of her books that's end up having a large number of reviews in different places called Transformative Experience. And thank you so much for giving us your time at this time of the busy year for you. And thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me to 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 have a conversation. I'm really excited about this conversation. I might end up going a bit deeper than some of the questions, but uh, I was really curious and really, really enjoyed your conversation with Sam Harris on stage uh, that ended up on his podcast. And especially specifically your take on parenting and being a transformative experience. And I've never heard anyone speak about it quite that way in terms of how it can change your brain. And, and as you know, I'm a neuroscientist, so that's all I ever think about. So how did you come to write this book, Laurie? Um, it's an interesting question. So, uh, I mean, part of it came from, I have an abiding interest in the way that experience um, affects our sense of sort of being embedded in the world and how we understand ourselves in the world and how we understand our, ourselves relative to other people and how that relates to maybe more abstract abstract questions of metaphysics and epistemology. But um, and in particular about how selves persist through time and change. But at the same time, I'm also a mother. And um, what happened was I had this kind of continuing kind of fascination with more abstract questions. And then I had my first child and I remembered um, after a couple of months after I sort of recovered from, you know, the kind of exciting and overwhelming experience of, of giving birth, I had my, my daughter and I was actually in Canberra and um, uh, breastfeeding her like at the, uh, at the little local mall. And I remember, and I, like some moments of reflection that I remember thinking, you know, this is, this was a really important life-defining experience for me. And it changed. I felt like I changed in important ways and also discovered things. And so it, like epistemologically, it seemed like quite important to me. And I thought, but I never see philosophers talk about, you know, having a child and how it changes you and the kinds of epistemological changes and expansions and, um, and developments that I thought I had experienced myself. Well, you know, this this needs to be talked about. Like, why isn't there a conversation? And I have some views about why there probably hasn't been that conversation, but that's how I sort of came to it originally. And I was thinking about it. And then what happened was, um, so I was visiting the Australian National University at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. and there was a philosophy of mind conference going on. And I uh, went to some of the talks. And um, afterwards, um, I was having dinner with some of the philosophers of mind. It's like table of six of us. We're at this restaurant, I remember, somewhere in Canberra. And... Um, 
Um, and and um, one of the philosophers, female philosophers, said, you know, I'm kind of thinking about maybe having a child, but I can't decide. I keep like, you know, thinking about all the different possibilities. And I start laughing and I say, you can't possibly decide on a rational basis. It's just not, you know, and I started kind of launching into this whole argument. And the table, there were six of us, we all just started arguing with each other. And also it was funny because there was another person there sitting to my right. He had just had a baby. like, And I could hear him. He kept, just kept, he didn't say much, but he just kept laughing every time I was like, you can't possibly tell. And so there's this and there's that. And it's this discovery. And he just kept laughing. Whereas the other people at the, at the table hadn't had kids. And so they were arguing with me. So we had this great discussion. And I went to, you know, it was fun, whatever. I went, went, went back um, to my apartment, went to sleep, got up in the morning. I was like, that's it. I need to talk about that. That's the framework that I really want to have as a kind of example um, for this larger thing, which is basically thinking about how very, um, how ordinarily we persist through time in this very kind of small, like in this ordinary way. And there are these small changes and it's gradual and maybe you make decisions or whatever. And then there's all of a sudden these punctuated massive life changes. And those have a special character. They have a special uh, structure. And I think conceptually we have to think about them differently. And then they, I think they have an impact on like decision-making and, um, you know, all kinds of other sorts of downstream uh, sort of, you know, dimensions of living in the world. Yeah, so, so, so um, <laughs> just that's amazing. So I had my first child in Canberra when I was at ANU. Oh, you did? I oh, did. Okay. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and so I was there for at ANU at the John Curtin School where I was trained as a neuroscientist actually for six years. And so I know all those restaurants, but it, it, this just speaks and resonates so well with me because I remember very clearly being at home um, I took my running clothes into the hospital. So I was still in the lab the night before. I was overdue. I was huge. going to go for exercise, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I had all my running clothes in the hospital and I didn't leave the bed for three weeks after I had my child because of lots of complications and my life completely changed. But then I still went back to work after 12 weeks. But I remember clearly thinking I can't think anymore <laughs> during that time. So... I really resonate with you. And there's this, as a cognitive scientist uh, on that realm, if, we, if you don't mind speaking about that, there's a whole burgeoning field opening up now called parental neuroscience, um, basically because of these hormonal and all sorts of other brain function changes happening in the brain. Uh, that makes sense, right, from an evolution point of view, that you now dedicate a lot of your machinery to making sure that child is safe and taken care of once you've produced it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But I think people don't understand just how profound that experience is. We don't think of it like that, do we? We think we're going to keep going. And there's this whole influencer on Instagram field now where people are saying, just take your baby along to your normal lifestyle. You've seen that where there's all these people out there saying you can just keep up the normal lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think, um, and I think it is, you know, people differ a lot and some people, um, maybe some people lead lives where they can in some ways fold the child into what they are or, and they're doing anyway. But I guess I kind of think that the, the major change is that um, <clears throat> you form this kind of loving attachment to a child um, where, you know, what you care about most changes. And that, I mean, that happened to me, like, you know, I was devoted to my career. I still am devoted to my career, but I was devoted to thinking about philosophical questions like every day and everything else that I did like and so if that was if that's your priority um then all of your downstream commitments were you know reflect that priority and then what happens is like all of a sudden there's this 
tiny person that depends on you and that you just, you know, if you attach them, you love with all your heart and, you know, and so they become incredibly central. It doesn't mean necessarily that like I stopped caring about my work because I didn't, but it meant I reorganized the structure of what I cared about and that changed. And so even if they're bringing their child, like to whatever it is, they're bringing their child to, you know, to work or to exercise or whatever it is. Um, I still think they're reorganizing their lives in, in, in a certain way. And if it really came down to if the child was sick, for example, they wouldn't go out and, and exercise because they'd have to stay home with the baby or whatever the question is, you know? So um, people don't think about it because I think it's really hard. It's really hard to think about yourself as caring about something that you don't care about now. Like that's the thing, like your future self, you know, if you, you know, you have the thing that you care about now that it makes sense to kind of say, oh yeah, I value this. This is how I would live my life. But if there's something that you don't have any contact with, that you don't have any kind of sense of valuing, then how can you sort of estimate the way that your life is going to change? You talk about, you call it the brute fact that Mm -hmm. we can know very little about our subjective futures when we're facing transformative experiences. And that's the bit that really resonated with me when you were speaking to Sam Harris on stage. So yes. let's let's elaborate on that uh, concept that uh, you talk a lot, and and let's let's give some reality to the implications for decision making that can bring this home for the audience listening. That uh, you talk a lot in your book and on stage about a concept called the brute fact, meaning that people mm-hmm. don't factor into this gap or this transit transition in decision making which is why it's led to you being on lots of podcasts and your books being reviewed across many different places because what you're describing, parenting is just one of them and it's a big one. It's a really big brute fact <laughs> but you can't that you can't put into your decision-making. So do you want to tell the audience, people that aren't philosophers or scientists, how they could apply mm-hmm. this to their understanding um, now when they're make, trying to make decisions, you know, whether it's career decisions or parenting decisions or... You know, I think the other one is aging too. We do not factor that brute fact into it either. Mm-hmm. No, that's right with aging um, and uh, aging in in the sense of just trying to kind of project what we're going to be like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, but also um, the kinds of things that can happen like Alzheimer's or, or Parkinson's and various kinds of cognitive decline. Um, and that matters because it's a pretty radical change, like that kind of radical cognitive change um, affects what we care about and how we want to live our lives. And so, you know, you could be um, like a devout vegetarian or um, have various kinds of other eating preferences that you feel very strongly about. And then, you know, after suffering from Alzheimer's, even like sort of early stage Alzheimer's, you might not care about those things at all. And the question is, you know, um, how do you navigate that if you've set up a care plan where you're not allowed to have meat, let's say, or, you know, or it has to be, you know, kind of, you know, I don't know, what halal or whatever, you know, I mean, um, um, and, you know, does the self that made the care plan get to decide what your life is like now, or do you get to decide like what your life is like now? And I don't think there's an easy, an easy answer there, actually. I think what's part of what's important is really recognizing that there can be these kind of different selves at these different stages of life and that they can really be kind of incommensurable with each other like and you know it's not clear like who has like who has the right to kind of control that self the self that exists then or some earlier or later self um now 
with people making decisions. I mean, honestly, I don't, I can talk about their conceptual structure and I have some thoughts about what people can, can say or do, but really it's more like understanding the situation that we're in as opposed to having some rule that we can apply. Um, so maybe the way I would put it is, I think it's important that people recognize that sometimes with these big life changes, like if you're about to become a parent or, um, or you are diagnosed with a serious disease or illness or early stage, you know, Alzheimer's or whatever it is, or, or you're going to move overseas or, um, get divorced. Okay. Um, I think in those moments, you know, in a sense, like the earth shifts beneath our feet, um, maybe a bit more slowly with, with childbearing, because you have some time while the baby's growing to kind of confront this, but there's a sense in which I think of it as like, you're facing a wall, like a mental wall, and you can't see past it. Um, and I think it's okay not to be able to see past it. Like, this is just a fact about human life. And I think expecting ourselves to see past it is part of the problem because then we blame ourselves for not being able to do it. We think if we agonize long enough or read enough testimony or do, you know, read the science even that'll give us insight. And it's not that, they, that it's, it's good information. I mean, ask your friends, talk to your parents, you know, whatever, read the scientific, um, you know, find out about the scientific data such as it exists, but it's just not going to solve the problem. You still can't see forward. And ultimately that information is like, it's useful, but I think it's, there's a sense that we don't really know how to make use of it. It's kind of like you get, you know, you read something in the newspaper about the latest study showing that um, people with, you know, hair of your color tend to like, you know, I don't know, uh, tend to like, you know, brown sweaters or something, <laughs> right? And okay, that's great. But do you know if just because you have hair of that color that you have, you've got other properties that make you like the rest of that kind of test population? No, you usually don't. So maybe you might like sweaters like that particular color, but you have to know more about whether or not you fit under that kind of categorization. So like when someone says, oh, I'm sure you'd love, you know, you'd love to have a child and you'd be a wonderful parent. Think, well, that's great, but you don't really know. And you don't know if you really would and you still don't know what it's going to be like. And so you have to kind of take this jump. Yes. So I guess part of what I'm saying is don't worry about it too much. So the it's other, okay. I, I assume you've been thinking too. So on my podcast and other people, I've interviewed a lot with Stephen Shaw about unplanned childlessness that's happening in the world that no one talks about mm -hmm. how we've got population decline, actually not an explode. We have an explosion on the top end of aging, but on the bottom end of having new children, we have actually a lot of unplanned childlessness. And so there's a lot of people struggling with not being able to have children and now facing a life without children. And that's something they say is something that's very invisible in the world, but they feel like it's a transformative experience for them too, that they mm -hmm. weren't expecting to experience. So that's another interesting thing mm -hmm. that I've noticed. And so they've set up grieving services and counseling services for people going through that, because when we have children, we don't tend to invite people in that wanted to have children but couldn't and so there's this divide that exists too which i think is really interesting mm -hmm. difference in how we view people with and without children too in their experiences yeah and i think um i think um i mean obviously it makes me it makes me it makes me very sad for someone who had wanted to have children and, and couldn't and it's um but i will say that I think think we're hard. I think things are harder on them than they should be because there's this kind of romanticization of being a parent. 
And, um, and I also think, um, I think maybe the way to put it is this, that's like, so, so when you, when you have a child, it changes you and it can be, it's a very joyous and meaningful event, but it's also very, there's a lot of suffering involved and it's very painful, but it's not like, even if you find it joyous and meaningful, that all along you would have found it joyous and meaningful. It's actually just that like it just changes you. So I have an example in my book about how like you can become a vampire. Well, it's like becoming a vampire. You just change the kind of person that you are. So the person who wasn't able to have children, there's a sense in which I think, um, you know, they're like, we're not appreciating like as a culture, how like, you know, how there's, I mean, it's it's like, it's not how, I'll put this in the right way. I don't think they're missing out as much as you might you might assume. And that's because the kind of person they are and the life that they're living um, is not comparable to the life that they would li live as a parent. So it's not like they're just missing out. It just means there's some things that they're missing, they're missing, but other things that they're gaining. And people always focus on, it's as though, oh, you're missing out because you wanted to have a child and you didn't have a child, as though it was a clear add-on to what someone's life is like, but that's not the case. Your life gets replaced by a new life. And I don't think that's a straightforward good. I'm just gonna be frank about that. I think it's like, it's not even clear that it's a good, even if now, as I've after I've been replaced, I'm a parent, I'm really happy, I wouldn't go back. I mean, I think there's a real sense in which the person who never had children should just value their own life and not be, it's not so obvious that they would wanna be replaced. Exactly. So, and and some of them, yeah. that, and that's their arguments too, as well, that they make huge contributions to society in terms of caring tax. Um, mm -hmm. And they do have very fulfilling lives. Their argument is that yeah. they're invisible and ignored and people look down on them in a way and don't invite them into those social circles because they're missing what they think is the, having the ch children in those social circles. So that there's like so you're absolutely right. Parenting thing and transformative experience, et cetera, that's got to apply to the lack of gender in the across all of science too and how we think about the world. Well, it's certainly relevant to philosophy. I mean, when I, you know, when I said earlier, um, um, you know, nursing my, um, breastfeeding my child, um, sitting there as a philosopher thinking about how, um, you know, these concepts hadn't been sort of developed and addressed in my field, I think, well, that's because it's all been male philosophers, um, or at least, I mean, now we have, we do have more women in, in, in the field, but I mean, sort of historically, um, um, there've been very few uh, female philosophers and, and the ones that were, were kind of weren't attended to and weren't kind of made part of the canon. Um, but, you know, I also think that a lot of times philosophers academics in general, like we didn't get out much, you know? So like, we'd like live in these ivory towers or um, um, live secluded lives in various ways. So we didn't have that many transformative experiences. Um, and, you know, none of them had babies obviously because like, or you know, had the baby, you know, had grew a baby inside themselves and gave birth to that child. And I think probably back in the day, men didn't um, attach as much to their children, or at least not, or I think it wasn't as common. Yeah, especially, um, well, it happened in the Industrial Revolution, didn't it, when they had to go away for work too? Apparently that was a big change in what fathers I, being I involved guess. in their children. I guess so. Um, but, um, 
but I, I do think that um, the field is changing and it, it we, we, we do have more, we do have more women getting involved slowly and also the topics. So when I introduced this topic to the philosophical conversation, it was, I thought actually that um, I was pleasantly surprised. I was quite anxious about giving these talks about having a baby because all of my work before had been on the nature of time and causation and muriology, like mm. theories of parts and wholes, like technical work. And I was well-respected for that work, but, you know, um, talking about, talking about babies would have just put me in a different category. And I was worried that I would be sort of in some sense, like laughed off the stage or like not taken seriously. And um, fortunately that didn't happen. In fact, quite the opposite happened, but it was kind of scary. And so it has been kind of transformative because now you know, um, we can talk about all kinds of different topics that are related to this, all kinds of personal life yeah. changes, like, you know, things that, that matter to us. And ideas kind of do seem to sort of just flow, but the arguments, I mean, as a philosopher, I have to kind of develop a theory and that's yeah. a slow, painful process. Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> getting, making it better and making yeah. better. And also having conversations with others. I mean, um, a lot of, you know, I told you the story where I had this kind of, you know, uh, you know, mm -hmm. rambunctious dinner with a bunch of other philosophers. And like, if I hadn't had that dinner, maybe I wouldn't have developed this idea, you know, yeah, because exactly. and then they were, we kept raising things and I kept thinking about it. I'm like, no, you know, like it's, you really can't know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And okay. so this is the beauty of this conversation is that it will create new ideas. And that's what I love about the podcast. Well, one that I get to meet people like you who, who are amazing, but these conversations also change the way you think about all sorts of things. It, it's really changed my understanding of the brain completely just by having a podcast. I'm so grateful for your time. How old are your children, by the way? Uh, my 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 daughter is twenty and my son is sixteen. Oh, actually, daughter is actually. I take it back. My daughter is still technically nineteen. She'll be twenty in about two weeks, and uh, my son is sixteen. Oh, yes. congratulations! You're almost there, but it's never there. Yeah. It's never there. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> as, yeah, I think you all know. Yeah. <laughs> as someone, my I we now have five, uh, twenty-two to thirty-three that are all arriving, oh, wow. Um, wow. and my son's in San Francisco still, but. It's never over Red Rover, as my mother would say. Mm. And now I'm looking mm. after my parents as well who in their 80s. So we're that sandwich generation, as you probably know. Yep. Yep. So thank you, Laurie. I really hope to um, have you back again when you uh, have more time and look at your next pieces of work. I've been following them really actively. I'm really grateful that you chose to be brave and courageous and stand up for female and gender issues in philosophy, physics, metaphysics, because it is very, and now the podcast space, unfortunately, has also become male dominated. And we mm -hmm. have to have female voices uh, mm -hmm. rising up. And it's not just female, it's gendered, because they do change the brain and that and they do under they do change our understanding of the mind body problem of physics and metaphysics everything and i think that's the next kind of 100 years of science that will be transformative so thank you for being at the leading edge of being bringing that parent voice to the table of philosophy yay
<laughs> and writing your book, Transformative Experience, plus many others. So anyone listening, I will put all the links to L.A. Paul's work. She has a large number of art, of scientific papers um, and books and also books for the general audience as well. So you can find those links in the podcast. Thank you, Laurie, for joining us, um, especially this time of the year. We hope you have a wonderful break and look forward to talking more again in 2024. Thanks for having me. It was very nice to have the conversation. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.